Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AX92, Property and Environmentalism, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, July the 7th, 1989, Easy Chair number 197. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss property and environmentalism. The subject of property is a very, very important one, but a much neglected one. Very few books are written on the subject. Gottfried Dietze wrote one about 20 years ago, um, mainly a history of the American views uh, beginning about the time of the uh, First Continental Congress. More recently, about 15 years ago, a very fine uh, symposium on the subject was edited by Sam Blumenfeld of our staff. That book is no longer available. There are as many views of property as there are cultures. And the idea of property has been important in the various cultures, and it is uh, rather distressing that more attention has not been given to the subject. In many a culture of very different sorts, property is tribally owned. As, for example, among the Highland clans of Scotland and the American Indian tribes. Property in other cultures is entirely owned by the ruler, and all the people hold property as a kind of grant from the ruler. However, the two main forms of property that we know in Western civilization have been, until about a century ago, private ownership and family ownership. The biblical pattern is family ownership. A person holds property as a trustee from his forebears uh, for those who are to come, the generations of the future. And as such, he cannot use it for uh, his own advantage. It must be used as an ongoing heritage for the family. This is why when Ahab, the king, sought to take Naboth's vineyard, the question at stake was not that he was not ready to pay properly. In fact, he offered him a generous amount. It was that Naboth said he had no right to sell what belonged to his ancestors and to his descendants. Well, in the past two centuries, we have seen the rise of the socialist or communist doctrine of property, whereby property belongs supposedly to the people, but is actually taken by the state. 
Property is thus a very important subject, a highly controversial subject. And it seems strange to me that it has not been given the attention it deserves. We're grateful, therefore, to the two of you listeners who wrote in and asked that we uh, discuss the subject. Well, with that uh, introduction, Otto, do you want to make a general statement on the subject? I looked up the word property in Noah Webster, 1828 dictionary, which is turning into one of my favorite volumes. Mm -hmm. And he quotes, of course, life, liberty, and property as the basis for this government, the protection of. And then he goes on to say, equate property with ownership and with man's dominion over the earth. Very good. Which, he says, is the basis of property rights in land. That the safety of property is one of the inherent and inalienable rights of this particular country, at least theoretically. And he also spoke about intellectual property. Excellent. Such as literary property. And that, of course, gives rise to thoughts about software for modern computers, songs, art, sculpture, and so forth. And I think we could have some interesting things to discuss in that area. Now, the whole question of ownership in property in the United States is one that is no longer accepted as uh, complete. It is subject now to modifications. And, of course, that means that the state has taken a long step toward eliminating the security of your ownership rights. I think that's one of the things that we all feel. Always, of course, in the name of the greater good. Yes, I think one of the so-called greater goods that uh, is being used now to tamper with ownership is environmentalism. Now, the interesting thing is that the liberals act as though environmentalism were a new discovery. Actually, the uh, subject of environmentalism goes back in a healthy and a godly sense to the Old Testament, to the respect required in wartime even for the fruit trees of an enemy that you didn't strike at what was the source of life, food. And a great many other things in the Bible had to do with environmentalism. For example, we know that out of the uh, biblical laws on theft and the respect for the environment, very early, both in the Hebrew and in the Christian heritage, it became illegal to do anything that would destroy the property of your neighbor. You could not, therefore, and this was a classic instance used over the centuries, 
set up a tannery next to a man's house because you would create noxious odors and you would damage his property. You would be stealing from him. Those protections were a part of the common law of the Western world until it became advantageous to legislators to attract uh, industry into their community with the Industrial Revolution. And then they waived all these laws and also gave various tax breaks to industrialists to entice them to move into their area. And that was the end of centuries-old biblically-grounded environmental concerns. It meant that the state destroyed the environmental protection that existed in common law, and now the state is destroying our property rights by coming in to govern things, possible acts, whereas previously under common law it was actual incidents. If you did something that destroyed a neighbor's right, you could be sued and you could be wiped out. And that was a great protection. Now you can go ahead, you pay a fine, and continue to operate. Well, that might have been true for up until fairly recently. Yes, up right. until fairly recently. It's no longer so. Let's go back a bit. In the West, as I understand it, in the ages of faith, the land was held more or less in common, but the baron or the prince or whatever, the count, really assumed uh, title and allowed the people to occupy the lands and their homes upon the payment of a small rental or part of their crop, tenant farming you might say, on something like 99 year leases, very long, over generations, and in fact up until World War II a great deal of Europe was occupied in that manner by for people who had occupied the land for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And it was always assumed in common law, I understand, that a man's house was his castle, that you couldn't break into it, you couldn't drive him out of it, you couldn't take it away from him without due process. Now, of course, we know that this was the ideal and not always true in practice. But the common law basis was that once you paid for your house, it was yours. Once you purchased the land, it was yours, and no one had a right to come and take it away. That no longer applies in the United States mm -hmm. because the government forces you to pay rent and if you are behind in your rent you will lose your home and your land no yes. matter how long your family has held it and no matter how much you paid yes well the biblical uh, law is of course no taxation on the land because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein as a result very early, the biblical requirement of no taxation on land did become adopted in various countries. 
I know that into the mid-70s at least in Greece there was still no property tax and this was in terms of biblical faith. Whether since then it has been introduced I don't know. Uh, in its place of course was the head or poll tax for all males. To me it's very interesting that Margaret Thatcher has proposed to return to this, the abolition in Britain of the property tax and the introduction of a small head tax for every uh, male, 18 and older. It would be wonderful if some variation of that could be introduced into the American states. You cited uh, James Otis' statement, a man's house is his castle. That reflected the old Christian tradition. It was his castle. And even in the Middle Ages, when uh, very early before the medieval world began to develop, the peasant farmers uh, gave nominal title to their land to the baron in return for protection, there were still many allodial owners, people who owned their small plot on the same basis as the baron owned his castle. So allodial ownership was still very much a part of uh, European life, and it was one of the things that uh, legal experts held marked American ownership after the War of Independence. Before that, all land ultimately resided in the king's name. But after that, it was allodial ownership until the Supreme Court began to alter the picture. Well, of course, the whole question of assessments, appraisals, might say by the government of the value of your land and your home has come up in a rather painful way to some people in small towns in New Jersey two or three years ago and they were the governments of these small towns were approached by a group of traveling experts who said you haven't changed your tax rates on houses in your area for 25 or 30 years. In the meantime, the value of these properties have gone up. Let us reappraise all the area in your town. And they did that, and they have done that in the last two or three or four or five towns. And suddenly, elderly people are confronted with, were confronted with an enormous bill which they couldn't pay mm -hmm. or faced with the loss of their home. Now this is perfectly legal. Uh, and hence the stories uh, appeared with pictures of those involved and the description and so forth for perhaps two or three days in the newspapers in the New York and New Jersey area and then dropped out of sight. Yes. Now, I have no idea of what happened to those people or what happened to that particular s approach because it's a way for these townships, a lot of the townships in certain areas, New Jersey and other areas, are dying. And they need revenues, of course, to put in, the, maintain their social programs. I mean, throwing people out of homes 
in order to yes. in order to support a social program which doesn't strike them as uh, being contradictory in the least but it's an example of the tyranny of the modern state which is still waiting for the writers and the poets to describe yes uh private property is virtually gone now. Uh, one of the things that marked Mussolini was his uh, rather hard-headed awareness of what the people could take. Mussolini was first and last a Marxist, but the Marxists hated him after he broke with them because his thesis was that no people will buy the idea of the state owning their property. Therefore, what we have to do is to accomplish the same thing that Marx proposed by indirection. We will allow people to retain title to their property because that's everything to them. We'll call it private property but we will tax it to the point where it is merely rented from us. We will control it. We will in every way be the actual owners while leaving title in the hands of the people. This way we can sell socialism to them because what we are then selling are the benefits, not the penalties. And that's how he succeeded. And of course, as I've said more than once, uh, as you know, Otto, uh, Mussolini should be the patron saint of modern status. Well, Hitler regarded Mussolini as their, his mentor. Yes. And Roosevelt and every president since could say that Mussolini was his mentor because the same concept has been adopted. We are a fascist country. A fascist economy. Or a fascist economy. Fascist yes. economy. Uh, without the <clears throat> social aspect of fascism under Adolf. Well, of course, great changes. In the middle of the 19th century, let's say from the 1840s to the 1890s, American businessmen and industrialists and citizens, for that matter, had the greatest opportunity, I guess, the modern world has ever seen. They were confronted with tens of thousands of unoccupied rich land available for the settling. And some of the big businessmen, the railroad industrialists and so forth, actually handled more territory than empires of the past used to have. The Union Pacific was a magnificent um, example of that. In order to persuade the industrialists to build that railroad linking California and the East, the Lincoln administration gave them all kinds of breaks, tax breaks, land breaks. They, they, they gave them 20-mile uh, swaths or 10-mile, I forget which, alternating all the way across the western part of the United States including the mineral rights. And 
It was after the railroad was built and connected that the West was settled, not before. Yes. The railroad built spur lines out, and wherever it built, towns appeared because all these families took the train west. The covered wagon was a relative handful. And for a brief time. And for a very brief time, because it was just simply too much trouble. I mean, mm -hmm. they went around the Cape, and they went up to uh, California because of the gold rush. And most of those who took their families and went were businessmen and not looking for gold. They looked for the gold that the miners had. Mm -hmm. But there was a change in the climate beginning around the turn of, the, of our century, the 20th century, where all this land and all these opportunities were too good for the people. They had to be saved from the people by the government. Today, the United States government owns more land in the western part of the United States than the people do. Yes. And the people are forbidden to own it. They cannot buy it. They can't settle it. They can't develop it. It's being held in trust for future generations while our rates of abortion continue to go up beyond a million and a half a year. So I wonder what future they expect to utilize it. Perhaps a hundred million Chinamen. Hmm. Well, there's another aspect to the issue of property an argument that has disappeared in this century but was very important in Christian circles in the last century. The curious fact is that uh, when Marx and the socialists generally talked about capitalism, they visualized an individual. And uh, he was a bloated, brutal character who uh, tyrannized over women, seduced them readily, and so on. And that character really was filled by one person, Karl Marx, in his personal life. So he was really describing himself, not the existing capitalists, who didn't have time for the most part for the kind of thing that... Uh, Marx was portraying. But the curious fact is that the socialists generally saw it as an individual. But some of the Christian moralists, and in this country most notably Robert Dabney, did not see anything wrong with that individual capitalist. What they feared was the corporation because together with limited liability, which uh, eliminated a great deal of responsibility, they saw an impersonality in the corporation which they felt made it closer to socialism than anything else, plus the fact that individuals are moral, but corporations they feared would see themselves as unrelated to morality. And, of course, we see that today. What Dabney feared, we see in the, what is it, 500 corporations that have offices in Moscow? 600. 600. And uh, the great many that uh, have been establishing them in uh, Beijing, China, and elsewhere, and who feel that morality has 
no connection with their operations, like Exxon and Angola. Well, not quite. Actually, these 600 corporations have been <clears throat> encouraged and persuaded, yes, and sometimes not gently, to do business with the Soviet world and with the Chinese world. But you've given a classic example of a man who told Washington where to go on that issue. Oh, you're talking about Russell de Young. Yes. Yes. Well, Russell was head of Goodyear Tire and Rubber at the time, largest rubber industry, large, largest rubber company. That was under uh, Lyndon Johnson, and Dean Rusk, I believe, was Secretary of State. And they were tr in the process of trying to wean, if you can believe this, Romania, that horrible place, away from the communist world. And they proposed to have one of the big rubber companies set up a synthetic rubber plant in Romania because synthetic rubber, as you know, uses petroleum. And they went to the two companies that had the most advanced synthetic rubber, Goodyear and Firestone. Well, Russell de Young listened to it. In fact, he went to Moscow together with some other uh, men from Akron, and they wanted in the worst way to have this done, uh, but they wanted it done on credit. They wanted, in other words, <coughs> the United States to pay for the price of putting up the plant and then turn the plant over to, the, to them. And Russell said he didn't think it was in the best interest of the United States and turned it down. Well, Raymond Firestone, whom I also talked to on this question, said that he would do it. And I said, why did you say so? He said, well, after all, if the President and the Secretary of State ask you to do it, he said, why would I protest? Of course, he said, I'll, I'll go along with my government. Well, the Young Americans for Freedom heard about this, and they began to uh, agitate against it, and they even had plans. At that time, Firestone was big in the 500 race, the Indy. They were going to rent a plane and they were going to fly it over the race with a big banner saying Firestone for slave labor. And the Goodyear salesmen began to put these articles in their sales kits. And believe it or not, people began to switch from Firestone to Goodyear tires, although there's really not much difference between them. But they just didn't like the idea. The New York Times was very upset and said that this is an example of fanatics interfering with foreign policy. And the New York Daily News at that time was very much on the side of Goodyear, so it even became a newspaper fight. Well, in the end, the heat was too much for Raymond to take, and he, he dropped the project. So it all came to naught, which is just as well. And about two years after that, I was at an industry convention, and I ran into DeYoung. And I said, by the way, whatever happened to you in your dealings with Washington, as a result of your stand on that synthetic rubber plant. Well, he said, that's very interesting. He said, of course, in the first place, we don't live off Washington. He said, only maybe 15% of our revenues were from government business, although that's not an inconsiderable percentage. He didn't think it was overwhelming. He said, after that, believe it or not, he said they rolled out the red carpet every time we went to town. <laughs> 
And uh, after I thought about it, I thought, well, yes, of course they would. I mean, a government that caves into every pressure group would certainly cave into anybody else that stands yes. up. And Especially. it still it sticks in my memory as an unusual thing, because Russell was a very unusual man. I wish there were more like him. Well, we are facing uh, a time when we need more men like him. And you mentioned uh, helping all these countries. Uh, tonight's paper said that Bush is planning to forgive the foreign debt of some of the African countries. I'm sure they'll be very grateful. <laughs> well, I wouldn't wait for their expression of gratitude. They'll probably be at the window demanding more money. Of course, now that the slate is going to be wiped clean, why yeah. not? Their credit will be good. Yes. <laughs> Strange they don't treat the American people the same way. We wouldn't need loans if they had we'd be all much more prosperous. Yes. Otto, I'd like to take our discussion of property into another area, one in which I feel property is being very seriously threatened. One, of course, and I'll let you deal with it because you've done quite a bit of reading on it, the seizure of property before a man is convicted. The other is uh, seizing uh, boats, automobiles, uh, money, anything. Uh, if a slight amount of uh, drug shows up on the testing, as a matter of fact, less than an ounce of marijuana or less than an, a gram of cocaine can lead to confiscation. Now, uh, the fact is, they can, by testing, find us all guilty of drug charges because there is scarcely any money floating around in the United States that does not have drug traces on it. Is that so? Yes so that all they have to do is to arrest you and put your money to a drug test and it will show traces of one drug or another. Well, planes have been seized, boats have been seized, cars have been seized without any conviction, just by finding a trace on them. And what is to prevent someone from planting an ounce of marijuana or a gram of cocaine on your property or in your car? Well, nothing. Only the pure in heart believe that every person in the law enforcement industry is perfectly honest. And the evidence seems to indicate that we have some of our worst people in the drug enforcement business precisely because of the power they have. Well, power is one element, of course. The enormous amounts of money floating around in that black market are another. But the most serious thing is, is the point that you brought up, and that is the seizure of assets before trial, let alone before conviction, Yes, 
in some cases, before the charge. Uh, yes, go ahead. Well, I remember saying at one point, I think in the Chalcedon report fairly recently, when James VI of Scotland was going to England to become James I and assume the crown, he stopped at some small town in northern England and a pickpocket was found working the crowd. And they told James, and James said, hang him, and they did. And I think it was Sir James Harrington who wrote in a letter, I hear that our new king hath hanged a man before trial. If that... If the wind blows that way, he said, why not hanging before the crime? Yes. Well, this is very close to that. Now, that was 400 yes. years ago. Exactly. And we're supposed to be advanced. Well, let me read something from about four months ago in the Insight for March 27, 1989, page 22. The Customs Service and the Coast Guard are modifying a year-old zero-tolerance policy of seizing boats on which small amounts of illegal drugs are found. Under a new set of guidelines announced by both agencies in February, commercial fishing vessels in operation or en route to or from fishing areas will not be seized if drugs are found in personal use quantities, that is, an amount generally defined as less than one ounce of marijuana or one gram of cocaine. Instead, the vessel's operators will be issued a summons to appear before customs at the end of the fishing trip. The new procedure responds to the complaints of fishermen who contend that the zero-tolerance policy threatens their livelihood. That is, the owners of the boats. What is less than a gram? Not much. I, I didn't know that it was even measurable. All right. The old criteria which called for immediate seizure of any vessel on which even trace amounts of illicit drugs are found will continue to be applied to recreational boats and yachts, says Judy Tum Turnbach, the zero-tolerance ombudsman for the Customs Service. Where are the judges and where is the Constitution... Incidentally, the Supreme Court ruled not long ago, this insane court that we have now, uh, it ruled that the RICO Act, which also involves seizing assets, includes the right of the district attorneys to seize legal fees. Now, that first came to my attention when recently in San Jose, the district attorney ordered the lawyers for various defendants to sequester the fees that they received because he said if the defendants are convicted, he will order those fees confiscated. Yes, I think that was Stockton. Stockton, yes. All right. Now, the, apparently this had been applied elsewhere because the case came to the Supreme Court not long after, in a different case of similar grounds. And the court ruled that Congress, in its wisdom, had not made any exception for legal fees when it comes to seizing the assets of criminal defendants. 
Because, and it went on to say the rights under the Sixth Amendment to counsel, etc., of your own choice, was not involved because the defendant had access to a public defender. Well, with all due respect to public defenders, some of whom I'm sure are capable and honest, they do not have the funds to investigate to the extent that the district attorney's office can, and therefore the kind of defense they can present is limited. And in any event, I doubt if his public defender who consistently defeats the government would keep his job indefinitely. Well, there are indications now that in some parts of the country, the drug control people are virtually on a bounty basis. So there is an inducement to find people guilty. Well, I've seen television shows, and they're pretty horrifying, I only saw one, which presumably followed an actual drug investigation group in somewhere in Florida. They broke down the building, they broke down the door, they rushed in, they had guns leveled, they forced the occupants of the building to lie down on their stomach, and then they handcuffed them with their arms behind their back and they hauled them up and hustled them out. Now, obviously their argument is that if they don't do this, that the defendants or the suspects will throw the drugs down the toilet or do this or do that or do the other thing. But it seems to me that when you're holding a gun two inches from a man's nose, that it's hardly necessary to put him down on the floor and put your foot on the small of his back. I wonder what's happening in this country. We seem to be taking our rules from television and from the movies, where, where Sam Spade, you remember, breaks the door down and throws a person up against the wall or throws him out the window yeah. and all this kind of nonsense. Well, I'm very much against drugs, but given what our drug control people have become, I think it's better to have the drugs than to have the kind of enforcement we are getting because it's a threat to the liberty of all of us. There is no part of the country where they are not operating and they don't get much of the publicity. In fact, if you happen to be in a car innocently with someone who may have a small amount of drugs in the car, you're in trouble, and it will take you everything you have to get yourself out of that trouble. Well, of course, you won't have much if your assets are seized. No. And uh, what this means, to seize assets before trial, just strikes me, no matter what the cause, yes. strikes me as inconsistent with the Constitution that was created in Philadelphia. Well, the Marcos case is a classic example. Well, yes, Mrs. Marcos, Imelda Marcos, and her husband had all their American assets frozen. She had to appear in court in New York, and the judge in New York gave her a $1 million bond, knowing that all her assets were frozen. 
and would have put her into the New York House of Detention, which is a, one of the most nauseating snake pits, I guess, in the country. And Doris Duke came to her rescue with a million dollars bond. Now, Ferdinand Marcos is dying, a very protracted sort of death, and apparently the government plans to proceed against his estate and his wife. In the meantime, their assets are frozen. Now, in the future, what leader of what government is going to rely upon the United States? The Marcos were wined and toasted by Eisenhower, by every president up to and including Mr. Reagan. The Philippines under the Marcos, whether they were corrupt or not, was an ally of this country. If they're going to treat the deposed leaders of allied countries in that manner, how are we going to treat our enemies? Well, of course, like Gorbachev, we're going to roll out the red carpet. His violations of human rights do not offend the New York Times. No. Well, we are in a very, very trying period because we are seeing in the name of dealing with uh, ostensible tyrants or dealing with drug dealers, property rights being steadily destroyed. Well, these are very strange property rights. Uh, there are property rights, as you described, to a fascist economy. Now, one of the things that's happening, of course, is the use of the environmental movement to stop manufacturing and oil exploration and various and sundry other industrial activities. Now, I had a friend when I lived in San Diego who had some desert land, and there was no use for it, and I don't know why he ever bought it in the first place, but it was sitting there and he had to pay taxes on it. So he finally decided to turn it into an off-the-road vehicle park where motorcycle nuts and various and sundry others could go wheeling around in the dust and enjoy themselves. And he was told by the authorities that he first had to have an environmental impact report, which would cost $40,000. Well, he couldn't afford it, so that was the end of that particular idea. Well, the last uh, attempt in this state or in the West, I believe, to build a new refinery was in the 70s, and they were going to build it out in the desert somewhere towards Blythe, way out in the desert so it would have no impact on any living person. Uh, but a particular type of lizard that is common to all of California was going to be endangered, and so it was killed. Well... I just finished a book on the Arch Mineral Corporation and they were starting a plant in a, a coal mine rather in Wyoming and somebody on the site saw a black-footed ferret which apparently is quite rare so the government ordered all operations to halt until they found whether or not the ferret was by itself a friend of mine said <laughs> It had to find two of them to have any problems. Uh, and several months went by. Uh, everything was suspended. 
Finally, not finding any more ferrets, they allowed the company to continue. In the meantime, the price of gold had increased by $8 a ton. So it cost the consumers that much. Yes. And uh, I couldn't help but reflect on the contradiction involved when evolutionists, most environmentalists are evolutionists, when evolutionists would protest the extinction of a species. It seems contradictory, doesn't it? Yes. Well, of course, in this area we have an ongoing problem because the mountain lion are increasing. In fact, they're in the valley now and uh, each mountain lion has to have a few miles territory. And they've actually found one in the city limits, a young one, of Stockton, a city of, what is it, 200,000? And yet they keep insisting it's endangered. And there's a court case to prevent the uh, thinning out of the mountain lion in order to protect uh, the farming and urban areas. Well, you really have to have the wisdom of God to interfere in the life chain and to make it better than it actually is if you leave it alone. But the environmental thing is now that Mr. Bush has come forward with a new environmental program, I think the whole question is, is getting to be very interesting because under Mr. Carter, if you recall, there was a considerable effort to put out synthetic fuels to replace petroleum. Uh, I've forgotten now the exact, oh yes, in 1980, Carter signed a synthetic fuels bill which created a special government corporation capitalized with $20 billion, with another $68 billion available for the following seven years, subject to congressional appropriation. This was designed to produce the equivalent of 500,000 barrels a day by 1987, two million barrels a day by 1992 from alternative sources. Coal would be turned into gasoline and oil would be extracted from shale. It also created a solar energy bank and authorized a $1.45 billion alcohol fuel production plant. We haven't seen anything about that recently because they seem to have forgotten. But what happened uh, a little bit later to that program was that an oil glut developed which reduced oil and gas prices and by 1985 the synthetic uh, the there was a 2.1 billion dollar gold gasification plant near Beulah, North Dakota. It became productive in 1984 and it produced 137 million cubic feet of natural gas to Middle West consumers but an oil glut developed. So by 1985, the synthetic gas produced there cost three times as much as natural gas. And the five-company consortium asked for federal subsidies of $720 million in price supports. But in July 1985, the Energy Secretary refused to approve these price supports. And the next day, the House of Representatives cut off the funds of the synthetic fuels. And as a result, it was abandoned. 
so much for Mr. Carter's program. Yes. You were quoting from your new book. Why don't you give the title and publisher and price, and uh, we'll try to carry that as soon as it's uh, well, possible to get copies. It's an advanced copy. It's called The Buried Treasure, The Story of Arch Mineral. It's, uh, I don't know what the price is. Nobody, they forgot to tell me. It was put out by Braddock Communications Incorporated. It's the story of the management of a coal company, which is only 20 years old, so of course environment, environmental issues thread in and out of the whole narrative. Right now, for instance, the Bush program is talking about methanol, which is a pollutant. Yes. It's another pollutant. And it can be made, they say, from various agricultural products. And, of course, this is about the farmers of the Midwest, just like that was, mm -hmm. uh, the Carter program was. But what they are not saying is that methanol can be made from natural gas. And natural gas is being flared by Saudi Arabia as a waste fuel. So all they have to do is to put up huge plant to produce methanol with their natural gas, and they can ship it in here and undercut any price that we could possibly achieve here in the United States. So what we're really talking about is making ourselves more dependent again on the Arabs in the name of a clean environment. Mm -hmm. Well, when greater absurdities will be invented, Washington will do it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. And meanwhile, our property rights are being eroded every day. Well, what can you say about property rights when we cannot mine or extract the wealth from under the earth without going through a gauntlet of opposition? Yes. Now, all the wealth in the world comes from the earth. The gold, the coal, the oil, everything. The Africans walk and are still walking across one of the great treasure houses of the world. When the white man went into black Africa, they didn't have the wheel. They were living off whatever came naturally. They couldn't extract the treasures from under the surface of the earth and process them because they lacked the knowledge. The Indians of North America were, as you know, semi-starving most of the time because they walked across all these resources and didn't know what to do with them. If we were to listen to the environmentalists, I'm sorry to say, the only plot of land that individuals could occupy and meet their objections would be a cemetery. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, meanwhile, every year we own our properties a little less because the taxes go up and uh, the controls increase. Every time you're going to do something, you run into problems. You can't put up a house. You can't add a room to your house. You can't change anything on your property. You can't cut a tree. And if you're going to build, you are required to pay all kinds of special assessments to give the politicians more money. Don't forget the intellectual property rights. Now, as, yes. a, as a writer, uh, I have something to say on that score. 
When we sign a publishing contract, generally speaking, with a commercial publisher in New York City, he takes our rights to our progeny away in return for publishing. For the next 28 years, the publisher owns the rights to your book. Unless you retain copyright. Unless you retain, well, even if you retain copyright, your, your contract will assign the rights to him. Yes. In order to get the rights back, you have to have, he has to agree to give them back to you. Because I recall when I broke with the New York Times book company that the lawyer I used said, you're very fortunate that Tom Lipscomb is a decent man and gave you back the rights. Because he said, one way publishers kill a book forever is to just publish a few copies and then sit on the rights for 28 years without ever publishing again. Yes. That's why so many are going to smaller publishers now. I remember this case. Do you remember when the case of the Thin Man came up? You remember that was a Dashiell Hammett characterization in one of his novels? Yes. And somebody started a television series based on the Thin Man. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether Hammett was still alive or not, but somebody sued. I think probably it was that terrible woman, Lillian Hellman. Hell Yes. She sued. She was great for suing. And uh, she's sizzling somewhere, I'm sure, now. <laughs> At any rate, she argued that they didn't have the right to use the character that he had, that Hammett had created. And the case went to court, and it went to quite a, uh, on several levels before the court finally ruled that an author's creations were intellectual property and could not be used by anybody. The other side argued that they had entered the public domain. Well, we are today a little better in that respect in that uh, the United States this year signed the Berne Convention, which gives writers more rights before and after death. That's interesting. Yes. I'd like to know more about that. We were one of the last modern countries to enter into the Berne Convention. So that was a, a great boon for writers. That's very good. Yes. Even if someone holds your copyright, you have not signed away certain rights. You cannot. You cannot. It's like an inalienable right. Yes. Well, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Because when I investigated the U.S. Patent Office on one occasion, because of a uh, very interesting patent suit in the rubber industry, I discovered to my horror that the Patent Office had been penetrated. Yes. That act patents that had been issued were withdrawn and canceled later by individuals inside the Patent Office. And the Patent Office no longer believes that an inventor should have a monopoly for 28 years over his own invention. They insist that an inventor must license other people to use his invention yes. and live on a royalty, which means that you live on the other fellow's decency unless you've got an unlimited amount of money to pursue every violation of your patent yes. or to demand a proper accounting of the royalties that you license. The yes, Patent the, Office doesn't believe in patents. No, no, the Patent Office is certainly among the very worst branches of the federal government. There is no branch of the government which believes in private property. No, 
They believe in federal powers in every sphere. State, local, and county also. Yes. I see no difference in the no. bureaucrats no matter what the level. It's amazing. It's, yes. it's really... Uh, what is the sin that covers the desire to have power? Because it becomes a sin in certain people. At the moment, I can't think of it. Yes, I but I, I, I was thinking again of that terrible Jamie Jamie, James the first of England. I govern, he said, not according to the common will, but the common wheel. Mm -hmm. And of course, he did neither. Yes. And that, the common wheel or welfare. Same thing? The same thing. It's the excuse used by the federal government and the Supreme Court every time it extends the power of the state over us. Well, our time is almost up. The subject of property is a very, very important one. Perhaps sometime in the future we should do a symposium on this it because would, it's a very important subject. It would be well worth doing. Yes. Well, let's keep that in the back of our mind, uh, Otto, and uh, start thinking of people who could contribute to the subject. That's very interesting. Yes, I will. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.